Welcome to this week's episode of the HC Hive, a podcast about all things HCI, UX, and grad school. We're now in Hershali, students in Georgia Tech's Human Computer Interaction Program. In this episode, we will be chatting about physical prototyping and the incredible world of tangible product design. We have three guests with us today, Prabhod, Noah, and Tim. Uh, let's begin with a round of introductions. So Prabhod, why don't you start us off and tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm Prabhod. I'm a second year in the HCI program. And I have a background in, in robotics. And over the years, like after robotics, I ended up working in corporate startups and then sort of drifted over into interaction design. And uh, that's what I was doing before I joined the program. And really interested in sort of the overlap between digital and physical product design. Hi, I'm Noah. I am, I guess, an alum of the HCI program uh, with a previous background in industrial design and mechanical engineering. But I'm now a research scientist at Georgia Tech. Uh, But I also teach the physical prototyping for HCI course within the program. Kind of a lot of experience making things, building stuff, uh, how to make things, a variety of prototyping kind of tool and skill knowledge as well. Hi, my name is Tim Trent, and I am actually just finishing up my first semester with the MSHCI program right now, but I have a background in computer science and am also research faculty with the GVU Center at Georgia Tech, which is sort of uh, Georgia Tech's main human-centered computing research center. And within GVU, what I do is I sort of, well, i do all sorts of things, but I think relevantly, I manage our prototyping lab and sort of help assist with any of the physical prototyping needs that any of the researchers in this area, any students that are coming through that are interested, and just any folks that might have questions uh, want to figure out. I'm so excited for this lineup. Uh, You guys are all very, very awesome people. So I'm super happy to have all you guys here on the podcast today. Happy to be here. Right. Yeah. Just to echo what um, Harshali said, we are very, very excited for this episode and to hear a lot of different opinions and viewpoints and, of course, hot takes later on. But first, let's start off with some of the basics for our listeners. So what exactly is tangible product design, and where do you all draw the line between what a physical design might be versus what a digital design might be? So I'll say the the easy answer to this is hardware and software. That That's where you can sort of think about drawing the line, but it really gets a lot more complicated than that. I find this question sort of interesting because if you had asked this, say, 10 years ago, it wouldn't even really be a question the the nature of kind of tan, what, what we refer to now as tangible product design or physical product design, right, um, has come about because this idea of digital product has become a thing. And so I come from an industrial design background, which is kind of the traditional sense of what we would call like tangible or physical product design, where it's making objects which people use in their daily lives that may be everything from toasters to watering cans to chairs as sort of the canonical example. In previous times, we might refer to like digital product design as like, you know, somebody's doing graphic design or software design or they're a programmer. And so I think it's interesting how the language has changed over the years. 
I would say like where I personally draw the line between like the, the physical and digital is that when you're making a physical object, you're generally making the primary object. It is the thing within itself that you're interacting with. Whereas digital design, you're really designing on top of what someone else has made. So you're designing like the software for someone else's hardware product. It's it's kind of like you're making the like bread for their toaster, I guess. Like you can't really have a, a good toasting experience without the bread, but your bread still has to fit in their toaster, I guess. And so it's an interesting quality that within the digital space that really someone else is laying out a lot of the constraints for how your product needs to work. So Noah, I actually, I, I think what you said earlier is kind of interesting on there and that the language has changed because I actually see things going a step further from what you mentioned, where it used to be only physical products. And now we have this concept of a digital product. And I think we are actually getting into the next phase where there's not really a difference between this anymore. I mean, everything we do now has a computer in it. Your watch has a computer. Your glasses have a computer. If I have my way, your jacket will have a computer in it. And so I, I think at the end of the day, we really are in this point where digital products are so ubiquitous and you know even things as simple as desktop software and mobile applications you have to consider you know what are the physical constraints someone's going to be using these under what are you know what are the various ways they might need accessibility options and what are ways we can just make it more enjoyable so i am going to take the easy route here and say there's not really a difference when you get down into it so i, I had this thing when i started out in the program where I wanted to do just physical tangible design. And then at, at this point right now, I, I realized that even typical digital design has a lot of factors which spill over into physical design. So one example of this would be if uh, you're pre-ordering on Starbucks, it's not just the app that you're designing, but it's the entire experience. And the experience has a physical factor associated with it, where after ordering, you'll be walking into the store and you expect to have the drink ready. But there's like this entire process that happens on how you get the drink. So every every digital design in, in the current scenario does have some physical aspects associated with it. So it's it's, it's a very blurry line. Yeah, I, I love that the line has become more blurred over the years. And as Tim was saying, that sense that we've, we're go we've gone from the like physical product design, then now product design is sort of digital, but now we're getting back to this point where the entire experience is designed, right? The, the user experience is the whole process, not just one aspect or another. Yeah, I feel like you kind of got thrown under the bus by going first because you took the very real answer of, okay, well, a physical design is when you're actually building something, whereas I can sit here and code an app together. But I think at the end of the day, if we're talking good design, there are other things that should be considered. It, it also comes down to like how corporate sees it as well, like a corporate environment. If you're applying to a job and you want to do things that are not just purely on screen, I periodically have asked recruiters, like what job should you know a person wanting to do this should apply for? And generally they come back with, oh, you should really be applying for this hardware engineer position versus the product design position, which I find sort of interesting. You mean people get paid to do this? Sometimes. <laughs>
Ooh, that's a great discussion. And I think me and now were not to this extent, but we kind of debated over this as well uh, while developing kind of the script for this episode. Uh, we were kind of wondering, like, where is the line? And we were thinking what the opposite or the converse of a physical design even is. So, yeah, it is really interesting to see how that definition has morphed. But also, there is a lot of integrity within just physical design and within digital design. But there's a lot of overlap as well. And, and I think as designers, that's like a, a current and future challenge. And that's something that we need to be trained in. But, you know, speaking of kind of your own experiences of doing physical design, but also sort of digital products, working with digital products as well, how does that process differ? How does, how does the process of making a physical object differ from a digital one? And like, what are some things that we as designers should sort of keep in mind you know, when we're not necessarily making something uh, with infinite UI space or, or UI capability. I think my perspective on this definitely comes from my background in computer science. So I very much uh, take this route of I'm used to designing things like programs. I'm used to doing purely software where the nice thing is you can sort of do something as many times as you want and it costs you nothing. So I can make a change in my code. I can change line six and say, okay, what does that do? And then I can change line seven and then I can go back and say, wait, no, I wanted line six to be what it was before and it's happening quickly it's happening you know at the speed of my computer really and it doesn't cost me anything aside from the time and copy that i needed to get to wherever i was with physical products on the other hand they're expensive and I mean, this goes from everything to the fact that the equipment that you're using, you know, 3D printers still aren't super cheap for getting high quality. The materials that you're using are expensive. And anytime you do something subtractive, and sometimes even when you do things that are additive, you can't necessarily reverse and walk back these changes. So it's this idea that you're, you're doing things and you might be bringing these uh, design processes, you know, in agile thinking or whatever, that you really want to really rapidly iterate and do things and just make small incremental changes. And that's not necessarily possible. And then there's also the fact that you really have to start thinking about scale a lot more than you do with a digital artifact. Because when you create something digitally, you can always, you know, scale up, scale down, stretch, skew. Uh, if you're making a physical product and someone comes to you and says, I want something that's five inches by six inches, and I want to stick it to the back of a t-shirt. And then you make a t-shirt that has something five by six on it. And they realize, oh, that's enormous. I had no idea that's how big it would be. And it's just a hard thing for people to conceptualize. And so that's another one of the really big sort of gotchas that I see people run into. Yeah, to kind of build on what Tim said, I, I think to use the cliche statement, hardware is hard. <laughs> it, the biggest difference I would say is like physics exists in building real things. You have to be worried about gravity and mass and things of that nature. And Charlie, you made the comment of things being infinite within the digital space. And I would I would push against that. Things are not infinite. There, There is pixel perfect, right? Like a, something is going to be 20 pixels and it's always going to be 20 pixels wide. Whereas in Tim's example, if something is five inches, is it five inches? Is it 5.00001 inches? What's the precision at play? And so... 
you can have that element of things being just like a little bit off and it might be a little bit off going from like one manufacturing process to another and you end up with a lot of complexity i guess yeah and cost right the cost of making you know another envision prototype is effectively just your time where the cost of say 3d printing another object may be hours or days as well as the cost of the material and the printer itself I've encountered a lot of people trying to apply the like two week sprint approach to making like physical objects. And it doesn't work when you like need to order material and it takes a week and a half for the material to show up. And so it's, it's just like these like real world challenges become really kind of difficult. Also with a physical object, you can't push a hot fix to it. If you ship a product and it doesn't work and it breaks, like your hotfix is called a recall and you have to get all those products back and fix them. And like, that's just not doable at all. I, I completely agree with that. And along with the cost, uh, one thing I'd like to sort of add to that was also like the time. So as you mentioned, um, the, the development time for anything which is hardware or tangible typically takes a lot more than a digital product would. Along with this, there's also a problem that I've encountered, which is, as, as you might all be aware, the either client needs or user needs, uh, they keep on changing. And the, the development time of hardware design is so long that there's always a chance that the needs or the requirements might have changed when you have one prototype ready. So from electronic hardware design, the typical development cycle, which I follow is... So I look at the needs and requirements. I make the design in CAD software. Then I make the printed circuit board design, which typically would take two to three weeks to get printed and come back. Uh, along with this, you have to order the components, which get soldered on, which would again take two to three weeks. Soldering takes three days. And then testing would take a few more days after that. So one cycle is typically a month or a month and a half. I'll also add that uh, one thing that is sort of vastly different is the infrastructure that you need between these two types of designs, where if you are trying to do something with uh, your digital product, you know, you're writing code and you just can't get what you're trying to do you need some new feature well that's usually either downloading a new program and working with something different like that and you can do that on any machine or maybe you need to upgrade your computer and this is an expensive upgrade you might have to buy the thirty thousand dollar new macbook with all the bells and whistles but it's sort of an easy upgrade aside from the natural cost if you find you're developing a physical product and you need some form of other type of tool, some other capacity to do something, you're not only talking about a whole bunch of money to update this, but you need space to put whatever tool you're working in. And so if you, it's all well and good to say, hey, I'd really love to start making something in metal instead of wood, but this means you need a shop that's twice the size of the one you're currently working in. So you can have your saw that cuts wood and your saw that cuts this metal and your saw that only cuts this one really specific type of metal because everything else will be absolutely destroyed. And that's why it's nice to have shared spaces like the GBU prototyping lab. <laughs> yeah, you're not you're not going to go set up your table saw in a coffee shop for an afternoon, right? There, there are all sorts of kind of environmental constraints that you have to start being aware of when dealing with making physical objects. 
that like software companies don't really have to be concerned with or software people doing software based or in that way. Yeah. Working remotely is a lot easier when you don't have to physically be at the thing to build it. Yeah. I mean, I, I know just being from the Silicon Valley, like there's a lot of companies that'll set up shop in just like some random floor of a, of like a high rise or something, you know, like that could not be possible when you're building something that's very physical and very real. But all of you guys mentioned this, and it's really interesting to think about how the pursuit of physical objects and physical pro product development can have like some very major implications outside of just your design team or like your immediate org. So like, do you guys have any tips or any experiences of, you know, pushing for tangible products in a world that is becoming very sort of agile oriented, very sort of fast rapid iterative product development focused how do you guys kind of deal with that i always sort of like the saying that if a picture's worth a thousand words a model's worth a thousand pictures and i and i think people still just mm. humans gravitate towards real tangible objects so like I, i've had instances and i i have lots of other kind of anecdotal experiences from other people where you bring a, an object into a meeting and the whole meeting becomes about the object rather than about, you know, whatever pictures or renders that other people had brought in. I had the opportunity when I was mm -hmm. in the HCI program to intern at Ford Motor Company. And I sort of got put into an, an odd role there as kind of a physical interaction design slash like experimenter of things. Um, and I ended up working quite closely with one of the auto designers there doing some really quick physical prototypes. So he'd hand me a sketch. I would CAD something up, get it 3D printed and like get it back within. And we're, we're talking like a day or two kind of turnaround times pretty quick. And this was like kind of a really interesting way for them to work, the sense of making things quickly, but things that they could hold and then walk over to a vehicle and put it in and look at it kind of within that context. And I think the, in a weird way, like the best way to convince people that they should be making physical prototypes is to make a physical prototype. It's sort of a weird chicken or the egg, but being able to show people, and it could be something as simple as like some cut pieces of paper taped together. It doesn't have to be, you know, a full 3D model and 3D printed. Just some simple paper models can be really, really help get a point across or help to communicate. Yeah. And also, like, I'll let you talk a bit about uh, rapid prototyping, which is like exactly what Noah spoke about, where if we don't have to go through the entire process, we don't need finished products, but we need something that sort of conveys uh, the importance of the product and maybe some of the functions. And that itself can either be a conversation starter or it can even be used for initial prototyping or testing, which would then sort of show what or like define the final product which comes out. Also with a rapid prototype can be made with something like a makerspace or a lab. It doesn't need like a lengthy process or all of the components, a lot of money. And it's sort of like the best way to start off. And also there's time to sort of go wrong and then uh, do things right. So anyone who wants to start out, I would highly recommend sort of rapidly prototyping stuff early on and then using that to shape the final product. And I honestly consider myself a little fortunate that I've mainly worked on the research side of things. Um, and so that, that's not to say I don't fight the constant battle of justifying why 
computer scientists need to be able to build things. Um, but I don't have as much experience trying to get like a company to start uh, investing in physical uh, design. I think to me, I, I would draw back on what both Prabod and Noah have said of it all comes back to just showing people. And that is the beauty of a physical thing of you can show someone what's happening in the real world and move things around in front of them. I think one of my favorite demonstrations for wearable computing has been one that Dr. Thad Starner did where he's been wearing a computer on his head since 1993. And so he walked into a class full of Georgia Tech students and asked a bunch of rapid fire questions to see if anyone could get the answers before him. And he was just getting the live feed on his glasses whereas everyone else had to pull out their phone or look at their watch and just being able to give that demonstration of this is how fast a specific device to do this thing this is the value add that we can give um, is really the only way to get people to conceptualize it but the moment you have something in hand it's instantly easy for people to see why that's a useful thing yeah i think also, just that having something in hand is a good question starter. It gets you asking questions that you may not have considered. One of the projects within the course that I teach has students make home goods out of cardboard. And so it might be like a, a coffee maker. And it's just made essentially out of kind of like a cardboard box style of product. But it just start having that object in front of you starts to raise questions that you may not have considered in terms of, how do you load the cup? How big does the cup area need to be? Can you get your hand in there with the cup? How do you know if the device is actually dispensing coffee? What might you hear or see or smell? And getting those questions flowing that then can feed back into much more rich interaction experiences. Yeah, definitely. Um, all three of you brought up really good points here about like having physical models being a really good like conversation or question starter. But also I think it's just, um, I took Noah's physical prototyping class. And I think because we're making physical products, um, they were much smaller products, but just me holding like a shoebox of models or going around and carrying things to and from classes, I think also just garnered attention. Like people are wondering like, what is she making? Why is she making that? So I think that also just like the whole attention aspect is a big thing too. And I guess with like kind of the relationship between like physical and digital products, what's interesting too is paper models, even though they could be like very low fidelity or anything, but paper prototypes, it's crazy like how much insights we can get from like our users or our participants from those things. And then I feel like with like digital prototypes, sometimes it's like you almost, I guess, depending on what you're looking for in your evaluation, like you almost should have some what of a medium to high fidelity prototype. Like if I did a digital prototype, but it was just your very simple, like a couple of boxes and squares and like a few simple icons, I feel like participants would expect a lot more out of that um, as opposed to like, there's a little bit more freedom or a little bit more like leniency to paper prototypes. But yeah, that's great that you mentioned the coffee maker, Noah. I also made a coffee maker when I was taking your class and all those different decisions about like cup sizes versus like, can you fit your hand in there? Those were, I admit, not things that I had considered at first um, until when you actually like print out or laser cut these cardboard pieces and build it together, you realize that a coffee machine doesn't need to be that large and that your dimensions can be a lot smaller. But yeah, 
uh, thank you all for um, sharing those insights with us. But kind of moving on to something slightly more just specifically with HCI, um, everyone claims to think about the user and their designs, especially within our field. But when it comes to physical objects, kind of have to consider users a little bit more holistically. Um, so when we think about the H in HCI, uh, what are some like human constraints or characteristics that you all think we have to think about when building tangible experiences? So how do we build for humans who would have these more rich physical, mental, and social lives? Um, Prabodh, would you like to start us off on this one? Yes. Yeah. So this is this is a great question, and it, it's also very relevant because I'm I'm going through uh, this exact same problem not problem, but this exact same situation in my master's project. So to give you a bit of brief, for my master's project, I'm working on creating a wearable device, uh, which is a peripheral interaction device. So it uses peripheral senses, like the sensation of wind, the sensation of sound, and these sort of stimuli to convey information. When I started out sort of with this, if you look at it, it's more of a technology which is being adapted into um, a human-computer interaction uh, scenario. So when I began, I didn't have a user as such. It was something with, can this be done, this technology? And so the first stage of my project was looking at who are the users of this technology. So I've developed, uh, I've developed a prototype for this, and I'll be sort of doing a user study in which I'll be looking at potential users and then defining users through that user study. And along with that, defining uh, use case and use case scenarios. So in addition to uh, the double diamond approach, um, there's like, I think another half diamond there in which you need to sort of converge on the users and define the users before you sort of start developing a product. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really important question, particularly within the HCI kind of world, right? We are dealing with people and their kind of characteristics and their lives. And so there, there's a lot of interesting aspects with it. I, I think you can go like really old school and say like, you know, human factors, ergonomics, you know, become much more of an issue, right? If you're designing something for the iPhone, the iPhone screen is a certain size and it's been set, but like the iPhone still has to fit into somebody's hand, right? So when you're, or into their pocket, and so you can, you can look back, I mean, one of the resources I still tend to pull out, although uh, some may argue it's a little outdated, is the Measures of Man and Woman, uh, Human Factors in Design book uh, from Dreyfus Associates, which is like this big collection of like, here are, you know, the 95th percentile hand size, and here's the, you know, fifth percentile hand size. And so like big hands and small hands, or how large you should make a button to push or a knob to rotate or something like that. And it's a good kind of starting point uh, for a lot of those measures to consider. But one of the big things now within HCI in general is accessibility, right? And so considering accessibility in a physical product, you start to take into consideration, you know, can someone who's potentially say in a wheelchair reach your object or see a screen if it's on a counter or something of that nature. And then you also get into like people's lives and how they're going to use the products in their home. One, one of the recent ones that comes to mind is the Apple AirPod or the HomePod where it left marks on people's furniture because of the material choice they made. And so 
it's another kind of aspect that you need to keep in mind, right? Is that where are these people going to be using these things? What's the context of their use in addition to just how you use them? Yeah, and I I I I hate to go away from what Noah and Prabod are talking about here with you know the considering your users because at the end of the day that is the single most important thing in design. But I do want to sort of touch on the I guess somewhat more practical side of when you're switching to doing these tangible products, you are introducing so many new senses that you don't have with just software, like touch and haptics are such rich and can offer so many different sensations and can offer different sensations for different people. And so it's even such a thing as simple as you could have a hundred different switches and each of them, each button that you push feels slightly different. And for the user experience, you really need to find some way to sit down and test those things. When you're talking to users, I know Noah and I both have a binder that is full of a very specific type of fastener because we just love how the fasteners work. Um, and, you know, there's a tendency to, we want to use those, but you know, are those fasteners the right choice? Do people like that interaction? What material is it going on to? Do I like the feel of wood or metal? Does it match the aesthetics? Is scent or taste going to be an issue at play here? Is this something, you know, potentially an ingestible device instead of just a tangible and things like that? And so, you know, it, it is one of those things of you have to remember that your users are now going to have a whole bunch of new senses that you might not usually think about in design. And there's going to be a broad range of potential, I guess, spectrum of senses that different folks might have. Um, so it's important to keep that in mind. That's super interesting to think about, especially because I like I come from like a neuroscience background. And so in my study of people, that's how I've sort of primarily studied them um, as like a combination of systems and like senses. We as technology becomes more incredible and more interactive, um, I think we do need to think about moving away from kind of visual first interaction um, and thinking about how technology affects us kind of holistically, whether it's the smell of the technology or, or the, the sense of touch. That's a very sort of open field. Um, there's a lot to be done there and a lot to explore. So that's really cool. Um, and thank you for sharing kind of all of those insights. That was really interesting. But for our final question that we love to ask all of our guests, for our, for our hot takes question this episode, what is the worst physical prototype you have ever seen? Share so I'm going to start multiple. off uh, by not answering your question at all and instead take on an entire industry here. Um, and this is something that Noah and I have talked about uh, multiple times in the past, uh, but it is the idea of any sort of customized like gift or art piece item and everything. Because it's very common that you'll go and you'll see something like, oh, this is a, you know, glass, like your standard drinking glass, and we've got your name etched into it. And so it's a $140 glass. But at the end of the day, if you have a laser cutter that you have access to, that's five minutes of your time and a little bit of work in Illustrator. And so to me, just whenever I see these just shelves of often poorly made, but ridiculously overpriced products that are simple, you know, either laser designs, simple if you just have a handsaw and some wood glue, that to me counts as, you know, worst physical prototyping, because it's just so easy. 
Tim, who has a everyone at Georgia Tech does come to the GBU? <laughs> I swear this is not an ad for the GBU prototyping lab. That is not the only reason I agreed to be on here, but it is great airspace. I think like ever since I got to use the laser cutter in the GVU usability lab, I have been obsessed with it. And like, it's really changed my life. So I get it, but also I've never had. And I, I will say that to me is one of my favorite things about getting folks into using this sort of equipment, doing physical prototyping is with any sort of thing that you do, the moment you try it and you see what it's like, it becomes a whole lot. You suddenly realize that it's easier and you're basically putting a, tool in your tool belt and so if you start off with just some exacto knives a few screwdrivers and some glue you can get a lot done so you could spend like the next hour and a half uh discussing my enjoyment and discovery of the laser cutter as a tool i i, I, I will <laughs> say just being at a university <laughs> environment the exposure to like really high-end equipment that you might not just go randomly purchase a $30,000 laser cutter for your home is really, really cool. And I think students should take a huge advantage of it while they're at Georgia Tech and particularly with the GVU prototyping lab or the numerous other spaces on campus. Uh, I run a space, uh, it's the interactive product design lab, but we do more uh, kind of integrating electronics within to product design. But as far as hot takes go, I, I think the one or three that kill me every time I see them, then these are usually from students and I'm seeing students do this in the class, is that anytime anybody ever shows up with like a grip for a tool and all they've done is taken a piece of clay and smushed it in their hand, drives me bonkers. Like you never see anything in the real world with like finger grooves like that because like nobody's fingers actually fit into those grooves and you don't really want them to anyway. Wait, I thought everyone's hands were shaped exactly yes, we the all, same. Yes, we all get cast hands upon birth. Like, oh, it's it's just terrible. Like, that, that one drives me nuts. Whenever anybody has built something that's supposed to function, and they say, trust me, it'll work for the real thing. And it, what's interesting is, like, <laughs> in digital, a lot of times that is the case, right? You put more time into it. You make sure that all your clicks work. You build out more functions. Sure. But in the physical world, like... You may actually just be trying to like violate the rules of physics and it will never work no matter how much time you put into it. And, and something I see in computing, particularly like computing people making physical objects is like if you just make a box that has like finger joints holding it together, it's not really physical design. You've made something, but have, have you really designed it though? Noah, stop talking about everything I've ever built. <laughs> there's there's multiple hot takes there, and I'm excited about all of them. But I agree. I feel like, I, I don't know, I get a lot of satisfaction from just, like, putting together, like, sits, planes, and turning it into a box. And, like, as somebody who hasn't built a lot of things, I feel like that's really fun. But also, I get it that it's not really No, and, and the joy fun. is an important <laughs> part there. Like... I, I, you know, it brings me joy to see someone like build something for the first time who hasn't necessarily made anything before. And I think that has like great value. You just have to kind of go beyond that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> for both, how about you? What's a hot take? I, I don't think I've ever heard you drop a hot take before. Yeah, so that's let's hear so, it. Like the, the, the discussion with the, the laser cutting and like having these personalized things is it, it was really interesting because in my undergrad, I, I used to laser cut stainless steel keychains 
and sell them at like four times the price. <laughs> you are the problem. <laughs> you are exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and and I think like, I did like earn a fair amount of change doing that. Like and of course, like we didn't have uh, like laser cutters in school, so I, I actually used to like go to an industrial estate and then like pay them to sort of laser cut it. And they had like these huge industrial machines. And then I, I spent like a, f- a couple of hours buffing all of them and make shiny. But it was like a good amount of money for the effort that went in. So yes, I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what a hot take. That's such a confession. Though. Yeah, but like, I am the hot take. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I remember, Tim, you would always be like, you can't use products that you make in the usability lab for like personal sale or personal profit. I know no, that's a Georgia Tech regulation. It's not just because I'm salty by walking around the Dragon Con vendor floor. <laughs> it's just funny because you know they, even though it's policy, it's like they put in those type of rules for a reason, and that reason includes promote <laughs> creating these products at his own time. But I mean, I'll admit I've thought of it after learning how to use a laser cutter. I feel like there's a line that you cross somewhere when you start making things where at some point you start seeing stuff in the world and you're like, I could make that. And it just like changes the way you see like everything Mm -hmm. around you that everything becomes a project instead of just like a product. Oh yeah, that's definitely true. And also like, I'm sure everybody's been in like IPDL or the prototyping lab (laughs) and like, I could start an Etsy store. Like everybody's had that thought. (laughs) But uh, now I feel like you've had a couple of projects um, that you've made, but like, do you have a hot take about physical prototyping? I feel like you have more experience than I do about this. Well, first, uh, just to talk about what Noah just mentioned about like, that's so true that like, once you start building something, you find a joy out of it. It's not really like making products anymore. You just look at things as like projects. Like just even, I think after learning like SolidWorks or like just general CAD modeling through Noah's class. And then like we were building cylinders or something. I remember looking at like ChapStick and I was like, I could do this. I could make this 3D print this. Like, why am I paying like $4 for lip balm? And like, I don't know. I just feel like you have those thoughts where it's like, you could really DIY anything. But yeah, so I guess like for the worst physical prototype is like, um, which we've had some pretty spicy takes in this episode. So I don't think mine will top it, but when, so basically like making like a, a phone prototype out of foam, like foam core or something. But then like, instead of like using paper screens that you like hand draw, it's like screens that you printed out that are obviously from a high fidelity prototype that you've done in Figma or something. Like to me, it feels like a couple steps backwards to do something like that. And I admit the worst physical prototype that I'm describing is something that I helped create last fall. And then since reflecting on that project, I realized how backwards that was to do rather than testing out something that could have been interactive in a digital format. That was meant to be a digital product anyway. But yeah, I would also agree with Tim though about these like customized gift things. Especially like online when you look on, um, even just looking at like they let you type in the text you want and you can like see a preview. But even that it's like always like off center and then like you don't really know what's going to come out. And now everyone has like a cricket so they can make their own t-shirts and like make their own everything. 
So I don't know. I feel like the value of those custom things are like very up in the air as well for me. But yeah, tossing it back to you, Hershali, I feel like you've done some tinkering and prototyping in your time. What's your hot take? What is the worst prototype you've ever seen? Ooh, back in my day. Well, I think I'll pull a page out of Tim's book when <laughs> taking on like an entire industry or ace. I think mobile phones are extremely poorly designed, like physically, especially like looking at the iPhone products and then Samsung kind of follows along. I feel sorry if Apple or Samsung ever hire me, please, please hire me. Um, but <laughs> I think it is, they're very poorly designed because I feel like they're hard to hold. They simply fall out of your hands half the time if you've ever lived without a phone case for a day your phone comes back with like battle stars or something from 24 hours i i don't think that they're very easy to use because you have to hold the phone in like four fingers and then use your thumb to actually navigate or interact with it um there's a lot of just like physical issues with mobile phones that i think somebody didn't really think about so that's my hot day but i feel like they're designed that way partly so if they do fall out of your hands and they do crack and break then you would go out and buy another one I, I feel like you need a entire Ooh. podcast on mobile phone design. It, it, it could easily be hours mm -hmm. upon hours. I mean, I, I could definitely add my hot take to that one that I think the original like flip razor is the best mobile phone design ever. Ooh. I've always wanted They're so one beautiful. Of those. All metal construction. The, the bottom of the hinge is protected by the chin so that if you drop it, it won't break. They wear really nicely. It's a wonderful device. You yeah, you can, can put the it's, phone it's down on people you know, really in order to answer your phone, you just <laughs> flip it. You don't have to like slide and then enter your code. And You can always do that dramatic flip too with a flip phone after you get the ring. I definitely agree with Arshali though. I miss the incredibly loud and incredibly angry click uh, when you're hanging up on someone that you just don't want to talk to. Those were some really fun hot takes. I enjoyed that hot take session. Ooh, okay. But as we wind down this episode, we just want to say thank you to Noah, Tim, and Propose for joining us on this super fun episode of the HC Hive. Uh, no, this episode was not sponsored by GVU, but still check out all the major spaces on campus if you're around. <laughs> yes, everyone, please let us know how many times you've heard GVU in this episode. Um, yes, another massive thank you to Noah, Tim, and Propose. But to all of our listeners out there, tune in next week for an episode where we sit back down with Gabriel, Han, and Tashar from our first episode of the season and talk about their fall semester. Because if you know, you know. And if you don't, yikes. Yikes. <laughs>